0: Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 2. Let's read the first four verses as we get started this morning. We'll actually look at the first 13 in our study. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they, the tongues as of fire, rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. What the 4th of July is to Americans... The 24th of May is to Christians. This morning we're going to look at the supernatural start of the New Testament church. And let me start here. By definition, the events that took place in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD, and according to Dr. Harold Honers, Cambridge University doctoral dissertation entitled, Dating the New Testament, these events took place on may twenty fourth of thirty three a d it 's not directly in the scripture, so he might be off, but those are the numbers i 'm working with. The events of Acts two, like the events associated with the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia on july fourth seventeen seventy six are unique Now Brent, my English teacher in high school told me, he'd never say very unique." because that's redundant, but Carla, these events are very unique. They're unrepeatable, Uh, and that's a fact we've got to keep in mind because for the last hundred years, there's been a large and growing contingent of believers in Christ that believe the events of Acts 2 should be the normative experience of Christians today. And I would argue, number one, just out of the box, this is a unique event It's recorded in Scripture. It's inerrant. It happened historically. It happened for a particular reason, and that particular reason doesn't exist anymore. We're well underway in the church age. So with that kind of as a disclaimer, unique events, not necessarily repeated, and I would say not intended to be, uh, let's do two things basically today. Let's look and see what the verses are saying, what happened in Acts 2. 1 through 13, and then what in the world does all this mean? One writer said the events of Acts 2 seem strange, sensational, and spooky. And this is not your average passage of Scripture, so I think we're going to need some extra special prayer for teachability. I'm looking at my man, Dr. Dig, who's going to have some consultation with Heart Doctor Tuesday to figure out what's going on with him. So let's uh, maybe have special prayer for Dr. Dig also. And uh, Jeff, I want you to pray that we'll be teachable. Let's pray for our uh, peace officers, firefighters, and our active military. And let's pray that Wolf will get some good information from the doctors and God's uh, will will be to help and to heal. We're going to make some fine and important distinctions between some concepts and words today. And so to warm up our capacity for abstract thought to do that, this isn't intended to be a funny list at all, necessarily. If you want to laugh, it's fine. Uh might laugh at the delivery, how poor it is, but uh, words are necessary, important, and tricky, and that's always true. Why do we park on driveways, but drive on parkways? English is a second language. People have a hard time with stuff like that. If slim and fat are opposites, why do the terms slim chance and fat chance mean the same thing? And they do. And if you're reading this 2,000 years later, you might not catch that. Why are the black boxes on airplanes actually bright orange? Because black box is a technical term, that's why. Why does the Big 12 Conference have 10 schools and the Big 10 Conference have 12 schools? Which is a fact. If that was in the Bible, they'd dig that up and say, hey, uh, Matthew said Big 12, but we found out there's only 10 teams there. That's a mistake. It's not a mistake. It's just the label that's used for the entity. Right, and then I made this up one all by myself, so I'm really proud of it um and this is uh just a graphic of a clock, as you can probably tell, and you've got what you've got like the uh which is the longer one uh that's the longer one okay, so that that's the short ones, so that's the hour hand right, 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 and that's the minute hand, and that's second hand. I probably should have got a graphic understood, but uh. So you got an hour hand, minute hand, second hand. Why is the second hand on the clock actually the third hand? Yeah. We're going to talk about tongues today, and the word tongues can mean several different things. And original readers and original experiencers would have understood the differences, but it's hard sometimes for us to follow that. Let's talk about the context briefly before we move on into the content. Uh, one good way to remember the, the twenty eight chapters, Dwayne, of the book of Acts, it's a big book. 28 chapters. But if you can remember the saying, Jesus is alive as head of his bride, it helps you because each one of those letters stands or can be used to stand for major content in each chapter. So let's uh, work uh, through Jesus in that memory device. J stands for, in chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus ascends to heaven, right? We start chapter 2 today. We see the establishment of the New Testament church in Jerusalem. In chapter 3, we'll see the salvation of a lame beggar the unleashing of persecution against the church and the sin in the church. So we're moving from chapter 1 to chapter 2, and we're seeing what Jesus said beginning to happen back in Acts 1-8. He says, in effect, don't worry about all the minute details of eschatology, but just stay in Jerusalem and realize you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in the city where you're at right now, Jerusalem, and in concentric circles out to Rome, the remotest parts of the earth. And in fact, we're looking at the first part of that geographical development of the book of Acts happening, and we'll emphasize that more as we get deeper in the book. But today we come to Acts chapter 2, and we'll look at the first 13 verses, and this chapter breaks down like this. First, we have the advent of the Holy Spirit in his New Testament ministries in verses 1 through 13. Then we're going to see a substantial response to the gospel of Jesus just A few hundred yards away from where they they lynched him, just a few months before. 3,000 people respond to Peter preaching the gospel about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. And then we're going to see the initial function of the first local church, which was Jerusalem Bible Fellowship. It wasn't even Presbyterian. The Presbyterians came later. Okay, let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The beginning of a whole new era marked by divinely given supernatural signs. And our passage breaks down nicely. The first four verses we just read talk about this unique work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And then we'll see the response of the crowd to all that. Look at verse 1 again. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Uh, who's all together in one place? Go back to chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, these all in the aftermath of the ascension of Christ were continually devoting themselves to prayer because he said the Holy Spirit's coming pretty quick, so don't leave town, just wait for it to happen. And uh, in that number included Mary, the mother of Jesus, and a group called the women uh, with his brothers, uh, two of whom at least were converted at that point. At this time, in that period between, and remember chapter 1 of Acts is taking place uh, on the day of the ascension and during the 10-day period between the ascension and the events of chapter 2. we got the death of Christ, which wasn't... Jesus didn't die as a virtuous martyr because he kind of crossed the man. He died at the very axis of the salvific plan of God. He who knew no sin was made to be sin, made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he dies for our, cross, for our sins on the cross. He rises again, what, fill us three days later? Forty days after his resurrection, what happens? The ascension. In the events of Acts 1, where the 120 are praying, after Jesus said, you're about to receive something new, new wine is going to come into the kingdom, the Holy Spirit is going to baptize you into my body. And so that's the group that's praying. Notice verse 15 of chapter 1 at this time. With this group, Peter stood up in the midst of the fellow believers, male and female, a gathering of about 120 persons, okay? So go back to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost, 10 days after the ascension took place, they, the 120, are still together, still praying for the fulfillment of the promises Jesus had just given them. And suddenly there came from heaven a supernaturally caused noise that sounded like a tornado, uh, people who don't live in Oklahoma would say it sounded like a freight train, right? Uh, a freight train didn't come through, but it sounded like that. And it filled the whole house where they're sitting and praying. And there also appeared to them tongues as of fire. Wow, what in the world is that? Distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in languages. We've got a sound, a sight, and a spectacle here. And uh, this is not a photograph, but it's one artist's representation of what it might have looked like. Actually, I don't like the looks of this guy. He looks a little bit androgynous to me, so I don't like that. We're going to change that one. But let's talk about tongues, okay? The word tongue in the original language of the New Testament is "glossa," and it can mean several things. It can mean the muscular organ in your mouth that allows you to, to eat and, and to speak, it can refer to anything shaped like a tongue. Uh, we have the same thing today: the tongue of a shoe, you know, the, the tongue that lays on top of your foot, and the laces come over it, and you, when you tie your shoe, kind of gets between the laces and your foot. Uh, specific human languages. He speaks in the Spanish tongue, in the Spanish language, or as a figure of speech for something that's said. We could say, "No tongue." can adequately describe the grace of God, and we would know what that would mean, right? Or we could say, uh, preachers like Billy Graham and Brent Corbin truly have golden tongues. So the word tongue can mean several different things. Now, I take it in verse 3, uh, we're using phenomenological language, the way it looks, sunrise, sunset, the way it looks. They're looking at ovoid-like clusters of brightness, I think this is Shekinah glory, it looks like fire, it looks like tongues, like a tongue of a shoe, uh, coming down and resting on them. I think that's what's happening there. However, even though the same Greek word is used, and most of your translations will continue to translate gloss off" throughout this passage with the word tongues, since the word tongue quite often just refers to human languages, and that's what's happening here after the fire Uh, comes down to give them a visible cue that something major, supernaturally is happening here. I'm going to translate tongue when it's appropriate as languages, just for our understanding. So we've got the sound, uh, the Holy Spirit like a rushing wind. Uh, The word translated wind in New Testament, Greek pneuma, can refer to wind, breath, or spirit. And in fact, the Lord Jesus says... uh, the Holy Spirit, being the whole born-again experience, being born of the Spirit, is kind of like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can't see the effects of the wind, right? So that's a symbol for the Holy Spirit. Fire in the presence of God and the power of God. Think about the burning bush, right? With Moses, you got the fire representing God. So you've got uh, wind, uh, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, a freight train coming through. You've got sight. You've got these little ovoids of, fire coming down Uh, and then in verse 4 they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages I'm going to translate it that way because that's what it means your wife Joe doesn't mean what she says hey Jenny your husband doesn't mean what he says your coaches don't necessarily mean what they say the pastor doesn't necessarily mean what he says uh, means what he says the Bible doesn't mean what it says it means what it means by what it says, the way it says it, in context, okay? So we're talking about what looks like little ovoids, like tongues of brightness of fire coming down, Holy Spirit being the manifestation, expression of that so they can see something in addition to the auditory sound of the mighty wind. And then what's really happening is they're controlled by the Holy Spirit and begin to speak with other languages, languages they hadn't learned now, there's an old joke that says, what do you call somebody who only speaks one language? In fact, I blew it. Um, I think the joke is, what do you speak somebody who's, uh, who only speaks two languages? Who's, I, this, this, I'm not going to go there. Okay. <laughs> I hate it when I start with a punchline. I'm just telling you. It's just, that's just me. Okay? And Holy Spirit, give me some utterance here. I need some help. Okay? Um, I'm just trying to speak English. You can't do that. Uh, yeah, so that's that. Um, now that we've done so well in the first four verses, let's move on to verses 5 through 13, shall we? And so we've got this very amazing work, which is going to be amplified in the next, next verses, so I think I can kind of correct myself a little bit. Verse 5, Now there were Jews living, whether permanently or more likely, most of them temporarily, for the holiday of Pentecost uh, in Jerusalem that day, Devout men, and we can translate that people, from every nation under heaven where they were Jews. As you know, at 586, the Babylonians, B.C., Babylonians destroyed the temple, we began the Babylon captivity, the diaspora, the Jews never all totally came back to the land even after the all-clear, they're all over the Mediterranean basin, but for certain holidays like Passover, Pentecost, and tabernacles, they're supposed to, if at all possible, come back to Jerusalem. Pentecost was the the holiday that was kind of, that celebrated the spring harvest. And one writer calls it like the, uh, 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 Jewish Old Testament Thanksgiving celebration. And although when it was instituted biblically, it didn't say this is what it commemorated, in the aftermath of the Babylonian captivity as Jews began to come back to Jerusalem, they began, they did the math, and they realized that the giving of the law took place 50 days after Passover. So they began every Pentecost, not just to celebrate God's faithful to, to them, faithfulness to them on the spring harvest, but also to celebrate the giving of the law to Moses. Okay, So that was kind of the ambiance of the holiday. So keep that in mind. And that's one reason there's so many different language groups. And uh when I went to that bad joke, I couldn't tell you. What I was going to say is most of us only speak one language, not very well in my case. But in the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon for people to speak multiple languages. And even your average Galilean would have spoken Aramaic and some, if not get by level, Greek. Okay, if you believe that. Uh, And I would think most of these Jews have come back for the Pentecost, could speak Aramaic and probably some Hebrew. Uh, so they, at one level, they didn't need help. But God is marking, and God always marks significant new beginnings in his program with supernatural signs. And we're beginning the church age here. And I think you've got all these people from all different countries that are Jewish. And there's a list there. We, we're not going to super analyze the list of, uh, of countries these people are from, but we're going to read it in a couple of verses. People from all over, I mean, every north, south, east, and west of the region, can you see that, have come to Jerusalem for this holiday. And many of them are multiple generation Parthians now or Romans or uh, whatever, uh, even Arabs uh, from Arabia in that sense. And so their first language would not have been Aramaic or Greek. It might have been something else. And that's what these people are going to hear The 120 speaking these different languages. Look at it. Let me pick up in verse 5. Now, in large part because of the holiday, although some of these other people may have come from, maybe for the recent Passover and stayed if they're older. That was typical. Uh, When you got older, if you could come back, you'd stay in the land. Aliyah, to go up to to the land. Uh, Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem for the Pentecost and other reasons that had grown up elsewhere. They're devout people from all kinds of nations under heaven. And when this sound occurred, uh, the sound of the wind, maybe, but the crowd probably didn't hear that. The sound of the tongues I'm not, of fire, I'm not sure that made any sound, but I think what they heard for sure, whether they heard the wind or not, they heard the 120 speaking the gospel in there in the listener's first language. When the sound of this occurred, the crowd came together, And they were bewildered because each one of them, each one of the members of the crowd was hearing them, the 120 filled with the Spirit speaking other languages, speak in his or her own language. And they were amazed. And astonished, saying, these are just Galileans. They normally speak Aramaic and a little Greek. And we're hearing them speak in in, uh, all the different dialects that are our first language because we've grown up all over the Mediterranean Basin. How is it that we each hear them in our language to which we were born, our, our native, our first language? And then he gives you the list of uh, geographical locations where these people had come from: Parthians and Medes, and basically moves from east to west on the on the map as a general description of this list: Parthians and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and districts of Libya around Cyrene. And visitors from Rome, both Jews and Gentile proselytes who'd gone the whole way of male, submitted to circumcision and living under the law. Cretans, people who lived on the island of Crete. Anybody in the room been to Crete? Several of us have been to Crete. It's a real place, real people, real places, real events. And Arabs, not culturally, but Jews who had lived on the Arabian Peninsula. Right? Uh, we, the crowd is saying, we hear them in our own languages. I know it says tongues in your English translation, but I'm telling you that means languages in that context, okay, Janet? We hear them in our own languages speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, in the aftermath of the ascension, what is the main mighty work of God they might be thinking about talking about? I would say probably the perfectly righteous life, the substitutionary atoning death, the literal body resurrection, and the promised return of the Savior Jesus Christ because, in fact, the Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world. I think that's what they're talking about. And look at the reaction. You can always explain away anything, right? you got good news and bad news. Some, the positive listeners, the open-hearted, they continue in amazement to listen with perplexity, saying, what does this mean? We've got to check this out. But others, you've always got cynics, skeptics, all the time, even in the mystery of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is scary, it comes to mind. Uh, Others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. They're just drunk. They just lost their facilities. And I don't think they really mean that seriously, but they're trying to explain it away. Okay, that was a quick and not my best attempt to tell you what the verses meant. But I'm trying to save time today because I want to deal with the issue of tongues and, and one other issue. Now, let me say a word about the 50-day period between the resurrection of Christ and the events of Acts 2, the descent of the Spirit. The arrow down is talking about the Spirit coming down uh, with the, the, you know the sounds and the sight and the spectacle, right? I found this chart on the Internet this week, and I included it for a couple of reasons. Number one, to emphasize the fact you shouldn't trust everything you find on the Internet. But, you know, that's an impressive looking chart, and it's not all bad. And I say, don't miss the main idea of the chart, which he's saying that you can line up historically the giving of the law and the celebration that Pentecost became of the giving of the law, the basis of the whole Testament paradigm, you can line that up with the giving of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD. And I think that's very valid and probably isn't emphasized enough in our circles. That's the main idea. However, I disagree with a lot of the details on this chart. And the big problem, and I don't want to go into so much minutia, you go to sleep, because I sound like a statistician. But, you know, statistics are great because they give you numerical precision, but they're easy to manipulate. And certain assumptions about how you use numbers will uh, determine how where you end up, right? So a big problem with this chart, uh, this is kind of inside baseball talk a little bit, But uh, the chart assumes that the uh, crucifixion took place in 30 AD and took place on Thursday. Long story short, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 12, talking about the events that would happen in his resurrection, says, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So people, some analytical 21st century interpreters that don't know anything about Jewish idioms, will say that's got to be three 24-hour day. so you've got to have a Thursday or even a Wednesday crucifixion. You can do the math. But in fact, and you can go to Esther and other places where, in fact, the terminology black box refers to something orange. The second hand refers to the third hand. Three days and three nights was a Jewish idiom for a period of three days with any part of any of those three days counting as a day. That's just the way they use the term. So... Don't be surprised if you're gonna you're gonna bump into some egghead that's gonna try to convince you the crucifixion took place on Thursday or Wednesday. Bottom line, I think Brent would strongly encourage me to say this. It doesn't really matter what day it took place on it, it matters what happened on it, but trust me, it, it happened on Good Friday. Okay? So that's a problem, and he says it in thirty AD, and I'm gonna tell you based on Harold Honer's Cambridge University doctoral dissertation named Dating the New Testament, which I think is should be the 67th book of the Bible. No, I'm kidding. It's not not perfect, but I use that for my numbers. He makes a a strong case the crucifixion took place on April 3rd, 33 AD on a Friday, which means Easter was April 5th, okay? So based on that, you get some strange numbers uh, on this chart if you analyze it, probably more than you should, but it does point out the parallel between the giving of the law, uh, the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant, Old Testament Israel as an entity, and the uh, day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and the giving of the Spirit that starts, in my opinion, a whole new deal and a whole new paradigm, right? But, uh, and you, if you want to do the math with all those numbers, you can go to, uh, two places. I've got a list here, but I'm going to save time and not uh, te- uh, tease that out for you. Uh, now it's hard to get a hold of, of Dr. Honer's Cambridge University doctoral dissertation, and he doesn't pay me any money for all this, okay? Have you seen Honer's commentary on Ephesians? You need to get it. It's heavy. You can kill bugs with it, but I mean, it's, it's that big. Uh, and unfortunately he's with, He's with. with. for him, he's with the Lord. He, he died at jogging a couple of years ago. When I when I knew him at Dallas Seminary, he was kind of out of shape, you know, yeah, but he's the world's expert on all the numbers, you know, and then he was jogging, so be careful not jogging. You don't want to do long, slow running. You want to do high-intensity interval, just telling you, but that's just me. But anyway, if you want to check the numbers, look at not his doctoral dissertation, but he wrote a book for... Uh, very accessible to the average person called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. Don't expect that to be a movie because that title just doesn't sing, okay, Savannah? Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. But you can buy it on Amazon for nothing, and it really d- goes into all those details if you're interested in that. And also, if you go to a Messianic Jewish uh, site uh, that a guy named Zola Levitt, it just uh Google Zola Levitt and put Pentecost, and he talks about the, all these kind of details and just the whole background of Pentecost and stuff like that. But uh, the point is this. And by the way, can you tell, that's my diagram, that's some real Bible teacher's diagram, okay? I'm just, I'm just the best I can. Um, I think the point you don't want to miss, and the reason I put the diagram in there, because I think it helps you to see that, is that uh, Pentecost in the Old Testament era especially after the captivity, emphasized the giving of the law. And the giving of the law established uh, Old Testament Israel as a functional entity in the immediate aftermath of going through the Red Sea. Uh, And that event was validated by signs and wonders because there's a whole new deal, right? We're shifting gears in God's program. When God shifts gears, he gives signs and wonders. Uh, The event in Pentecost we're going to talk about in some more detail here in a moment, uh, Lord willing. Uh, was the giving, not of the law, but of the Holy Spirit and the establishment, not of Old Testament Israel, but the New Testament church, validated by signs and wonders like what we just read about, which I'm going to call the manifestation of languages. And I'm going to make a distinction, Clay, between the manifestation of languages in Acts 2, 10, and 19, all of which happen in parallel, unique event situations to mark that he's doing the same thing. I'm going to make a distinction distinction between the manifestation of tongues and the spiritual gift of tongues you read about in first Corinthians and I'll explain what that means in a moment okay so let's talk about that let's talk about tongues i I can remember you know i I got saved at a Baptist church at age nine and it wasn't until I was in high school and my Sunday school teacher who had a, a Bible study uh, first started talking about the gift of tongues I'd never heard of tongues I didn't know what it even was. Uh, but uh, in the last hundred years, the modern charismatic uh, movement began and has thrived. And although they have different understandings of how Acts 2 should apply to, to individual Christians and churches, they tend to emphasize certain gifts that, in my opinion, were foundational given to the first-generation church only like the gift of apostle and like the gift of tongues, okay? But... Um, after I'd heard about the thing in, in high school, you know, I'd start watching, like, uh, this was before you had 5,000 channels on a clicker, you know, you had to get up and change the channel, but you could kind of get a rabbit ears with UHF, uh, uh, what, UHF, yeah, you get these crazy non-network channels, we were kind of only had three net channels you could watch, you know, the, the thinkers would let you watch, you know, the, the thought police, And now you could kind of, late at night, you could get some guy out, you know, in Arkansas or Appalachia, you know, handling snakes and speaking in tongues. And I remember seeing it on a scratchy television screen where people are just with good, in good faith, and I don't want to make fun of them. I just disagree with what they're doing. Uh, they're kind of speaking in a gibberish. If you've, some of you have been to Pentecostal uh, services and stuff, and that's your background. No disrespect, just a, a different opinion. Uh, what is called the gift of tongues today it tends to be an ecstatic experience where people start speaking in gibberish they're not, and they don't claim to be speaking in French, even though they never learned it, or Croatian, even though they never learned it. They're just speaking. You know, you kind of get into this thing, and it's, and it's been analyzed. It's called glossolalia. It's not a language, and that's a bit of a problem because the manifestation of languages here is sure human languages, right? And you see the same thing, only slightly different in First Corinthians. But let me say this about that. Go back to Acts two, and let's let's see what we've got here. Because, uh, and it's funny, Brent. This I've got kind of a different view on this. I wrote a paper on it once, and it was kind of peer reviewed, and so you know it's out there. But um, uh, I think most of us non-charismatics want to emphasize the continuity between Acts two. And the First Corinthian references to tongues because we're convinced tongues were real languages as opposed to gibberish or ecstatic utterance that wasn't really a human language. But I think you can go too far saying that what happened in Acts 2 is the same thing as First Corinthians. And let me show you what I mean. Uh, look at a couple of verses there. Look at Acts 2, verse 6b. Just the second part of the verse. I want to emphasize one little thing here. Uh, when the crowd heard the 120 speaking in other languages as the Spirit was giving them supernatural utterance to speak uh, Latin or to speak whatever they were speaking in uh, first century uh, Arabia, which was some kind of proto-Arabic, I'm sure. Uh, 6B says the crowd is saying, uh, or talking about the crowd, the crowd, each one of them in the crowd was hearing the 120 believers speak in his or her own language. They're all hearing all of them speak their native language. That's what I'm getting out of this. Look at verse 8. Then they actually are quoted kind of uh, generically. How How is it that we each, each one of us in the crowd, not the 120 believers, but in the crowd, hear them, the 120, who've had the Spirit come upon them and are speaking in language, languages. How do we hear each one of them in our own language speak the language to which we were born, our native, our first language. Uh, what I'm, what I'm seeing here, and I'm suggesting that what's happening here is you've got 120 believers preaching the gospel in their own words, in their, in their own language. But all the listeners are hearing all of the 120 speak in their language at the same time. So the guy who speaks Proto Arabic is hearing them all preach the gospel in Proto Arabic the guy who speaks Latin over here is hearing all of them speak Latin, okay? Now, the gift of tongues in church setting, that one church setting you find it, and as Brent will tell you, the only time tongues is discussed in the epistles is because it's causing problems and being misused, okay? So that's, that's interesting. But in that case, the gift of tongues, and I'm saying acts is the manifestation of tongues, which is more a hearing than just talking. But the gift in 1 Corinthians was was like Pat, by the power of the Spirit, suddenly speaking uh, Welch in the middle of a service, giving some kind of exhortation to be in the Word more, or to pray more, or to share the gospel more. And she's speaking to Welch, Amanda, and she doesn't know Welch, and neither do any of us. And we don't know what she means. So we need interpreters. And this is in First Corinthians. He says, hey, don't if you've got the gift of tongues, Don't use it in church unless there's an interpreter because it's a waste of time. Nobody's going to know what you're talking about. But in Acts 2, everybody is hearing all of the speakers speak in their language. There's no need for interpretation. Can you see a possibly a categorical difference there? Just think about that. But that's the way I'm going to interpret it. So let me say this about that. Acts 2 describes what I'm going to call, not the gift of tongues, but the manifestation of languages, which... When I say one time, it's one time in the sense that uh, it happens in this foundational situation where the church is being birthed. And then to validate that you could go directly to the Gentiles with Jesus and they don't have to become Jews first to pre-qualify in Acts 10. They do the same thing. And in Acts 19, we're going to see the very peculiar situation where you've got Old Testament believers living in the New Testament era. They've heard John the Baptist preaching generically about the Messiah, but they haven't heard specifics about Jesus until Paul tells them in Acts 19. And as soon as they believe, they have the same manifestation to tell people, hey, they're getting, now that they believe specifically in Jesus, they're members of the body of Christ, yada, yada, yada. So it's a very unique, sorry, English teacher. Mrs. Yost is probably upset. I'm saying very unique. Um that allowed the 120 in Jerusalem in the immediate aftermath of the Ascension to share the gospel of the group of Jews or God-fearers with great specificity in their native first languages that they had learned all over the Mediterranean Basin. This spontaneous manifestation of languages took place two other times as I said. And boy, I actually said it shorter on the fly there than I wrote it down, so that's good. Next page. Now, so you see what I'm saying? Let me go through the yellow part of this chart. Tongues and acts. And I'm colorblind, but I can see dark blue against black. I can see yellow against black and white against black. So you're, you're welcome. So I can see it. Those are the colors. That's all the colors I'm working with. That's all I got, Savannah. I can't give you what I don't have. Okay? So when I say tongues and acts, Nicole, that's yellow. I'm saying that's tongues and acts. Tongues and Corinthians, that's white, right? That is white, isn't it? Okay. We, we took the twins to ice cream. My, and my, you know, my my younger son has two-year-old twins, and his wife is pregnant with twins. We're gonna have four kids, less than three, two sets of twins, real quick. And so, I don't feel sorry for you, man. It's it's uh, raising one is tough, but raising four is gonna be. And I just get them, you know, I get a pass like every couple of months, and I get to keep them three weeks, oh, three days, not three weeks. But yeah. Uh, In Acts, we've got groups of believers speak and are understood by listeners in the listener's own language. Isn't that what it says here? Verse 8, how is it that we each hear them in our own language and we don't need an interpreter? That's different than what Paul's talking about in the gift of tongues in the church. No interpretation needed. And you see that three X, three times in paradigm changing context. And really this first one is the big foundational event and the other two parallel that. Uh, in unique, one-time-only church history situations that need to be resolved, and God does it in that way. It's pretty cool. Now, I'm going to argue that what we're seeing in Acts here is different than the gift of languages that you see regulated because it's being misused and, and used for wrong purposes. And, and Who it could believe the, the Corinthian church would mess something up? I mean, that's hard to believe, isn't it? Talk about hard stuff to believe in the Bible. Uh, I was different than the spiritual gift of languages, which was the supernatural ability that we just gave Pat. I, if I had the ability to give it to, him. and by the way, the first time we went to to Canoa in Mexico, the road stops. They don't speak Spanish. They speak whatever they spoke before the conquistadors got there 500 years ago. I said, Lord, if you can give me the gift of tongues, I will take it, okay? Because t- Tomas couldn't even talk to these people, okay? But I didn't get it, and because I think uh, he's got. Bigger reasons to give it than just to help me out that afternoon. But, uh, yeah. Uh, and so Pat's speaking Welsh. She doesn't know Welsh. It's a supernatural thing you can speak Welsh. You're not just saying gibberish, you're actually saying words with sentences, okay? But you don't know what you mean by what you say. It's God speaking, Spirit speaking through you in that language. Now, if you happen to have somebody who speaks Welsh in the audience, just because they grew up in Welshia, no, wherever they live. Whatever the country is, I forgot. Uh, they're listening. That's, that's good. That helps. Uh, it's good to know. Uh, that he could translate. But also, God, when he had a message in a church service like that, he definitely wanted to be interpreted. He, he gave the gift of interpretation where people could understand this language they'd not naturally learn. But there's a disconnect between saying it in the church as the gift of And the gift of interpretation, you've got to have the interpretation. Paul says, if you're going to do this in church service, two or three at the most can give the exhortations. Hurry up and get to the Scripture, not just the exhortations, not the pep rally, but the actual content. And you can't do it at all if there's no interpreter. It's just a waste of time because nobody knows what you're talking about. So in uh, 1 Corinthians, you've got a few individuals in the church who were given that specific gift, the gift of languages, uh, they're in a church service in a larger group, and they speak in a language, well, they don't know, they didn't learn, they don't understand. An interpretation was needed, natural or supernatural. So I would see the event in Acts is very unique for partly this reason. It's not the same thing. It's related. It involves, Michelle, it involves languages, and it involves using tongues, but it doesn't, it's not the same thing exactly. And I think that's a fine distinction that most people wouldn't even notice and wouldn't bring out, but I, I think it's there, and that's just my opinion. Okay? Take this to heart. God marks new phases of his program with unique supernatural markers. The Christian faith is rooted in and built on truth, facts, real people, real places, real events. The acts of Acts, events of Acts 2 really happened. If we, me and Andrew could get in a time machine, we'd go back there, we'd see it happen. It really happened but that doesn't mean every time somebody comes to faith or every time somebody's baptized in the Spirit, okay? Uh, by the way, Acts 1, go back to Acts 1 real quick. Last week, I said like three different times, I'm almost done, and I went another 20 minutes, and when I got home, I was in trouble. I'm just telling you. So I'm not going to do that anymore. But uh, although she's out of the room, so, but she's in the nursery, so she's going to really want me to be short today, right? But uh, yeah, uh, look at Acts 1, 4 and 5, uh, gathering the apostles, in this case, together. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. I want you to stay here. I'm going to start something big here pretty quick. He says, John the Baptist, you know, John the baptizing Jew, beginning of the Gospels, baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Baptism refers to immersion, or you could take something cloth and immerse it in a dye so you were identified with that color or the owner who's, you mark stuff blue for Lincoln and pink for Vivian. They're toothbrushes. We never have a problem with toothbrushes. We know which was which because of the color, right? Uh, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit means to be, a, be, to be identified with the body of Christ, to become a vested member in the body of Christ. When the events of Acts 2 happened, that was the first time you got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the birthday of the church i got a list of things we'll go over in the next couple of weeks that kind of walk tick you through that process of coming to that conclusion, but just kind of hold that as a possibility right now. Uh, but yeah, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you've got these very unique miracles happening to say, boom, this is what he was talking about. This is the beginning of something new. We're going from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the giving of the law to the giving of the Spirit. So I think you could say that, oops, I won't look at that now. Uh, that uh, as believers in Christ, I think we almost take not our local church for granted so much, but maybe the capital C church. One thing we emphasize here, Brent, a lot is we have a diagram. We put the cross and the resurrection right in the center of that diagram, and then we put ovals from different angles around the cross where they go out in different directions. And we'll say, you know, Southern Baptists who trust Christ are that group. Presbyterians who trust Christ are in that. Born-again Methodists are over here. Uh, born-again charismatics are over here. Okay, I'm not doubting the salvation of everybody who claims to be charismatic at all. Uh, uh, through faith in Christ, uh, God gives the gift of uh, salvation, and sometimes we have different opinions about how the Christian life works. But what you've got here in Acts 2 is unique. It's not designed to be normative or return repeated over and over and over again every Sunday or every Wednesday or every time somebody comes to faith. The baptism of the Holy Spirit here was marked with amazing miracles, but in general, 99.9% of the time, when someone trusts Christ, it may be a very emotional experience. It was for me. But the baptism of the Spirit is non-experiential. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that puts us into the body of Christ regardless of our denomination. And here at Tango Bible Fellowship, since we're a group of believers from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds united by our faith in Christ as Savior and a desire to grow and reproduce spiritually, That's really important for us because we're kind of like a dichotomy, uh, a microcosm, I should say, uh, of the way God sees his church. We got Baptists who have trusted Christ, Methodists, Presbyterians, uh, Church of the Nazarene, uh, Calvinist, Arminians, even some amillennialists, and we pray for those people intently around here. Trust me. But I think maybe, uh, understanding the spectacular nature of the beginning of the church age should hopefully help us to better appreciate not just its origin and history, but to more actively contribute to church history. I'll end with this, uh, and Brent knows about this, but I think, but uh, there was a, a golfer by the name of uh, Ben Crenshaw. That's now he's older. He's in the senior tree. He's not really that good anymore. He's had a lot of injuries. But Ben Crenshaw. Uh, in the early 70s was like the biggest thing in golf they thought he was going to be. And I, I lived in Texas at the time. He went to the University of Texas. They thought he was going to be the new Jack Nicklaus, and he really was an awesome golfer. Uh, but he didn't quite meet his potential. He didn't really become a mega superstar. He did win the Masters twice, which is huge. But he's 0 for 13. Do you know this, Brent? He 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 was 0 for 13 in playoffs on the PGA Tour. He never won a playoff. In fact, he lost a playoff for the PGA Tour championship against david grant but i say that say this uh crenshaw as he got older and people, the press was all down on him because he wasn't as good as everybody thought he was going to be really got into golf history and this is before he'd really won his first uh masters and uh he, he would go to Scot- scotland and just spend a week there just reading old books about golf instead of practicing and a lot of people who were really his friends like dave marr senior uh had this famous quote. He looked at, uh, looking at uh, Ben Crenshaw's record up to that point and being interviewed. David Maher, who had won the PJ Championship in uh, '65, said, uh, Ben Crenshaw needs to stop reading golf history and start making some. And that's where I'll leave you today. I think maybe a lot of us, including me, ought to probably stop uh, reading church history and start making some. And uh, one way you can do it, you don't have to go to Mexico or China. Just plug into your local church. Hey, if you don't like this one, find a better one to make it even better. You know, that's my, that's my opinion, you know. God's got a big greenhouse in Duncan. Find the best one you can to make it better. But uh, ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. Some famous Bible character once said that, right? And uh, rather than just reading about church history, and that's what we're doing in the book of Acts, let's, let's make something. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the way that you work quite often subtly in ways we wouldn't expect. and Sometimes we pray for things that would seem to be so wonderful and they just don't happen. Sometimes we don't understand what you're doing. But when we get the big uh, uh, paradigm changes in your program, you always make it crystal clear uh, that you're at work. And uh, people still explain it away. They're all drunk, Uh, but it doesn't wash. Uh, Right now, we're looking for the beginning of the end times, the coming of Christ for the church. And we know that's imminent, and it'll be sudden when it happens. And so we live with expectancy that could happen even today, but it might not happen for another thousand years. But we thank you that you have spoken, you haven't stuttered in the Word, and you mark the key points of your program supernaturally. And undeniably, we give you praise for that. Help us to appreciate the supernatural origins of the church and the way you still supernaturally uh, regenerate all those who are convicted by your spirit as you open hearts to see and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for anyone here this morning who's not for the depth of their heart as you allow them to see and believe, to say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. It's on me. It's not anybody's fault but my own. And I can't fix it, but I want you to. I dare to believe that Jesus Christ died as my substitute to pay for my sins on the cross and He rose again. And I trust Him with the depth of my heart as my Savior. Father, we thank You that uh, most of us are believers here today. And we thank You You don't just give us a get-out-of-hell free card when we trust Christ. You give us a whole new capacity to serve You and to live with a whole new worldview. And I pray that as we think about the... uh, fact that history is His story, and uh, events like Acts 2 uh, certainly emphasize and validate that, that we might live more consistently in light of that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.